everybody. Welcome to another episode of PYPL's Cardigans and Conversation. And we're here with friend of the show and producer and local author Bethany Snyder. Hey, everybody. How's it going today? Really good. It's uh, the day before Halloween, my favorite holiday. Mine too. Oh my gosh, this is the best time of year. It is. The weather's beautiful today, and we're one day from All Hallows' Eve, so what could be better? Absolutely nothing, except possibly the fact that we had another great edition of uh, Cuca Wright's Haunted Inkwell on Saturday, which is just so awesome. Yeah, we sure did. We had a bunch of people show up to do our spooky-themed writing prompt day, and it was great. We um, This year we did Write What You Fear. Mm. <laughs> so it was great. We collectively made a list of about, what, 50 things Gosh, yeah. that we all fear. And then we um, took turns. Well, we all got together and started writing about one of them for like five to seven minutes. Mm-hmm. Came up with some pretty good stuff. Yeah, and it was uh, a lot of fun because we didn't let each other know which fear we chose before we started writing. And then we would share, and uh, some of them were very obvious and others, uh, it was kind of hard to tell where we were going, but they were definitely scary. Absolutely. And it was fun to uh, see what scares some people mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to others. Like, I have a fear of giant underwater sea creatures, which is mm-hmm. not if you know, I'm not going to run into one of those here in Penyon, hopefully. <laughs> um, <laughs> Another flood. That's right. Uh, so it's great. And um, Halloween's favorite, too, for reading spooky stuff. Mm-hmm. I am currently rereading Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. Oh, and how is that going for you? Oh, it's really good. I just watched the Netflix series, which I thought was excellent, mm. but, you know, caveat, especially to certain people like Ronnie, <laughs> that uh, if you are a huge fan of the novel, it's not a direct representation of the novel. It's more like inspired by sure. or influenced by the, the novel. But the show creeped the heck out of me, so I thought I'd reread the book, and what better time to do it than right now? Absolutely. Well, here at the library, we love reading spooky stories, and we love those classics like Shirley Jackson's, classics like Stephen King's It, which I just finished reading for the first time ever. And there's a uh, we'll have a review of that later in the show for anyone who needs a review of It at this point in their lives. Um, but there's also uh, new spooky writing out there, and you are a big purveyor of that kind of thing. Um, I understand we have a little treat for our listeners today. Absolutely. I'm going to share one of um, the scary stories that I've written. It was actually inspired by a recurring nightmare that I had Mm. as a kid. I used to have this dream that I was standing in front of this really, really creepy door, like just the creepiest door you've ever seen in your life, in a basement, if you're not a fan of basements, which I'm not. Um, And I was being forced to open the door and go inside. And in the dream, I never actually got that far because I would just stand there just completely paralyzed with fear. And I thought, I should write about that. That would be good. I'm sure other people have had similar thoughts, like what's behind that door and do I really want to know? And uh, then one time I was actually on vacation with some friends and the title of the story came to me, which was Three Times Fast. Mm. So we're going to share that story with you now. And then uh, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more. And then we're going to share Alex's review of one of my favorite novels of all time, which is Stephen King's It. All right. Awesome. Thanks. She hasn't thought of the nightmare in years. The last time it had woken her, breathless, her skin slick with sweat, she had been just nine years old. Then her father died, and the nightmare changed. Now her breath quickens, her forearms marble into goose flesh. She closes her eyes and takes a step back, directly onto Max's foot. Ow, watch it, he says. He shakes his head and goes back to writing on the coffee-stained pad of paper he keeps tucked in his back pocket. Caroline looks again, a child's peak, though she resists the urge to cover her eyes with her splayed fingers. 
It's not just a door. It's the exact door from the nightmare that plagued her as a child, that left her screaming in the milky light of near dawn, terrifying her sister and causing Daphne, as if she needed cause, to wet the bed again. When the nightmares stopped, Caroline forgot the door completely, but now it comes into sharp and immediate focus. The burnt umber rust flakes on the hinges, the weather-beaten wood, splintered and pale gray, the color of driftwood. The knob is the worst of it, copper-aged green, embellished with one of those eyeless angel faces that decorate tombstones in neglected cemeteries full of the long dead. Breathing is a requirement, Max says. What? For life, breathing. You should try it. I'm breathing. Jesus, Carrie, the look on your face right now? I mean, it's exactly what people mean when they say, you look like you've seen a ghost. Max snaps a picture, and, blissfully, the light momentarily blinds her. Caroline turns her back on the door, although that is almost worse than facing it. Let's get out of here, I'm hungry. She isn't, but Max will do whatever she asks if food is involved. Caroline knows that the breathing she hears behind her, ragged and shallow, is just Max, a pack-a-day smoker, but she bites down on her lower lip to squelch a scream. Copper floods her mouth. It's only five steps across the narrow room from the nightmare door to the green metal door that leads to the tunnels proper, but her feet sink in the wet cement of her terrified childhood, and each step takes approximately a year, one for each year the nightmare came. When they are safely back in the mailroom, long vacant, a pile of 1996 yellow pages rotting in the corner beneath the empty mailboxes, Caroline's heart begins to slow. While Max packs the gear, Caroline risks a look back. Three steps lead down to the tunnels, which split off left and right to the main academic buildings on campus. In between is the green door, and behind that green door is the nightmare. There is nothing to see but a hand-lettered sign, the tape in the corners, brittle and yellowed, that reads, Keep out. This means you. When Caroline told her sister that she'd accepted a job as a location researcher for that show with the hunky ghost-hunting brothers, Daphne hadn't laughed. Instead, she'd pleaded with Caroline not to take the job. You were afraid of everything. You were afraid of the moon, Daphne said. And now you're going to research ghosts. I was a kid. Okay, so now you're fine, right? You don't have any more nightmares, no more waking up screaming. How long since Dad's made an appearance at the foot of your bed? Those were the nightmares that came after. When Jack Winter was still alive, Caroline was haunted by the door. A door she was sure she had seen in real life. Maybe in the cellar at her grandpa's house. Maybe in the dark at the end of the hallway in the library. Maybe this was the worst, at school, in the basement where they had to go for music class and the lights always flickered. Everyone told her it wasn't real, there was no door like that anywhere, but she knew. When Jack finally succumbed to the cancer that had turned him into a walking wraith during Caroline's fourth grade year, he became the nightmare. Daphne didn't remember the door, and Caroline did not remind her. That's all over, Daff, for years. In the end, Caroline promised her sister that she would check in daily and make an appointment with her therapist and leave the job if it became too much. The more she researched ghosts, the less often the specter of Jack Winter visited her dreams. The daily calls became weekly, and the therapist appointment was canceled. 
Caroline made fast friends with Max, the location scout, as well as the girls who did hair and makeup. She moved into a bigger apartment and adopted a cat and started seeing a man she met at one of Max's barbecues, Dan, a financial advisor. And then the script about the college came across her desk. They wanted something that looked classic New England, haunted, and she knew the perfect location. Bradford had been shuttered for a decade. Ivy grew over the doors. Books lined the shelves in the library. White linen tablecloths rotted on the round tables in the dining hall. It was as if they had turned out the lights, locked the doors, and never looked back. And there were tunnels, as requested. Max plucks the last handful of fries from the cardboard sleeve and dunks them in his milkshake. Chocolate dribbles into his beard. You are raising the bar, girl, Max says. I mean, that place is perfect. Good, Caroline says. Her burger is still in its paper wrapper. Are you okay? He puts his hand on top of hers. What's wrong? She runs her tongue along the ridge on her lip where her teeth broke the skin. That door, she says. The one with the weird knob. Max nods, flipping pages in his notebook. A smear of grease smudges the words. He's drawn a sketch of the door, hasty but accurate, and Caroline shivers. Pretty creepy, right? She wants to tell Max about the nightmare and how it is, somehow, the exact same door. She wants to tell him how, in the childhood dream, she stands in front of it, not moving, barely even breathing, and she cannot leave. She is not allowed to leave until she knocks on that door three times fast. She is frozen, five, six, eight years old, frozen to the dirt floor, paralyzed. She cannot move and she cannot leave, and she and the door face each other and wait, it creaking, almost breathing, and settling into the earth, she trembling, shivering in her thin nightgown, and desperately trying to not wet her pants. She knows that she must knock on the door three times fast, but she also knows, in the deepest part of her dreaming brain, that when she does, something will answer. Something big and terrible. Something with teeth. She wants to tell Max that, finally, because she has to pee so very much, she reaches out with one clenched fist and, her mouth frozen in a rictus of fear, feels her knuckles touch the splintered wood. And then she wakes up, shrieking. But she can't say any of this to Max. In the overheated dining room, under the fluorescent lights, her throat closes, and the most she can manage is, I don't like it. Tomorrow, when we meet the guy, we'll see if he can let us in. In? Max crumples the cardboard and waxy paper on his tray and lets out a quiet belch. In the door. Don't you want to see what's inside? Caroline picks up coffee on her way to campus in the morning. Her pockets are stuffed with cream and sugar because she doesn't know how Mr. Favell likes it. She and Max both take it black. Mr. Favell, the town historian, does not drink coffee. He is small, with a pointy nose and a scarf wrapped tight around his throat, although it is a warm day for late October. He ushers them down past the mailroom and into the tunnels, lecturing on the history of the school, admonishing them to watch where they step and to not touch the walls, which are covered with dated graffiti. How are we going to shoot down here if we can't touch anything, Max says. Favell shines his flashlight down the left-hand tunnel, then the right. He will take them down each branch in turn, lead them into the long, shuttered buildings where the tunnel's dead end. But first, the beam of light lands on the green door. This room, he says, 
was used to store things. Things, Caroline repeats. She clenches her fists in rhythm to her heartbeat, which is steady and slow. The night before, she had finally spoken aloud about the nightmare door, confessing the story to Dan after downing a bottle of wine. He put his arms around her while she cried, and then they laughed, finally, at how sure she'd been that she was going to pee her pants, and how each dawn it was Daphne who ended up wetting the bed. Caroline thinks now, as she watches the historian pull a jangle of keys from his coat pocket, that she would like to introduce Dan to her sister. Things, yes, an assortment of things, Favel says. He pushes open the green door, and there it is, five steps away, the literal stuff of nightmares. Caroline focuses on the historian's face, his bristle-brush mustache that twitches as he talks. Potatoes, beets, parsnips, perhaps. Max laughs. So you're saying this was a root cellar? Perhaps. Favel shifts his weight, purses his lips. Some information is incomplete. What's behind that door, Caroline asks, surprised at how easy her voice sounds. I have it here, Favel says. He rummages in his briefcase for a moment and then presents a rolled blueprint. He asks Max to hold it up against the concrete block wall and then runs his finger across it until he finds the mailroom and then the tunnels. Caroline steps closer and reads the handwritten text aloud. Swimming pool? The question mark is part of the notation. Ah, yes, the historian says. The mustache twitches. In the 1950s, the administration first began considering turning the school into a four-year college for both men and women. As you undoubtedly know, he said, nodding first at Caroline and then at Max, Bradford did not become a co-educational facility until 1971. However, as I have already mentioned, there was talk of transformation two decades earlier. At that time, plans were developed to install an underground swimming pool, just here, behind that door. An underground swimming pool, Max repeats. He hands the blueprint back to Favel and digs out his notebook. Could be a good storyline, right? He says quietly to Caroline, who nods. Max writes screenplays in his spare time, along with half the cast and crew. How far did they get in building it? Caroline asks. The historian picks through the keys until he finds the one he's looking for. It slides easily into the hole beneath the dead angel doorknob, and Caroline hears Max inhale sharply beside her. She bites the sore spot on her lip and tries to think of the heat of the wine in her belly, the sound of Dan's laughter, the coolness of his skin as they lay in bed in the morning, shoulder to shoulder, the sunlight through the window, the smell of coffee brewing downstairs, the promise of, there is a high-pitched scream, and then Max shouts, Jesus! My good man, are you all right? Favel says, and Caroline laughs. Max is bent over with his hands on his knees, breathing heavily. What the hell, Max says. Why did you scream? I didn't scream, Caroline replies. Not you, him. In the dim light, Caroline sees the historian blush. I was startled, he says. Twitch, twitch. It's a concrete wall, Max says. I see that now, Favel says. Please excuse me, I just... I thought I saw something right as the door opened. But there is nothing to see, nothing but a concrete wall, solid, impenetrable. Caroline takes the camera from Max and snaps a picture, then two. She makes sure that the historian is in one of the shots. Dan will love this story, and photographic evidence will make the telling of it even better. 
Favell prattles on about parsnips and the benefits of coeducational higher learning as he relocks the door to nothing. The two men cross the narrow room to the green door, the historian fussing with his flickering flashlight, Max shoving his notebook into his pocket and shaking his head. Caroline faces the door, her shoulders square. She waits a moment, waits for the panic, waits for the terror to loosen her bladder, but it does not come. There is nothing behind the door. Concrete, thick and solid as a tombstone. She closes her eyes and sees not the door, but her father, Jack Winter, flesh over bones, the face of the wraith at the end of the bed. That dream will still come. The men are in the mailroom now, their voices muffled. Caroline opens her eyes, steps to the door, and raises her clenched fist. As her knuckles touch the splintered wood, something knocks from the other side three times fast. So that was Three Times Fast, which you can get in print in my um, collection of short fiction, which is on Amazon called Copper and Stone. And so thanks for listening. That was amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. That gave me the chills. Good. That's what it was supposed and to do. That's not even the, I've heard this story before. You've, you've uh, read it at the library in the past at a reading, and it gave me chills then. It gives me chills now. And you know what I just thought of? What's that? What if the knocking on the other side of that wall is like the girl in another universe. Oh, like Caroline. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's creepy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, you know, sliding doors, but the horror version. <laughs> right. I never thought of it like that. It very well could be. You know, a lot of times when I write, I don't know the answers to the questions mm-hmm. that my fictions bring up, which I know bother some people. But when I wrote that last line, I had no idea yeah. what was on the other side, what was knocking. But the idea that it might be Caroline mm-hmm. in like another a parallel yeah. dimension. Got sucked in by some Lovecraft demons or something. Earth 2, maybe? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Got to bring in the CW at some point. But, you know, that's that's the great thing about horror is uh, you know, the unknown is the scariest thing of all. Absolutely. And uh, reminds me of a certain Halloween uh, tradition uh, that uh, <laughs> uh, I love David S. Pumpkins. I'm going to come out oh. and say it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, was trying to find a, I was trying to find a casual way to bring David S. Pumpkins up, and that wasn't exactly it. But hey, now I've done it. So uh, so David S. Pumpkins, if you don't, are not familiar, is a Saturday Night Live character that just doesn't make mm-hmm. any darn sense. Nope. Um, and that's kind of both the appeal of its humor and its horror. What is this guy all about? Why is his name David S. Pumpkins? Um, but to get serious. Yes. <laughs> Well, we'll put a link to David S. Pumpkins oh, in this post. Wonderful, because it's it, you must see David Absolutely. S. Pumpkins. Um, that's not really my favorite spooky oh, story, good. but uh, <laughs> I was wondering if you have a favorite scary story or book. I would say, and I mentioned it earlier, is my favorite is probably Stephen King's It. I read it first when I was maybe in eighth or ninth grade, and it is a story about horrible things and scary, terrifying things. But it's to me, it's a story about friendship. And at the time, I had all of my best friends read the book. And we all shared the same copy, which I still have today. The pages fall out if you open mm-hmm. it now. And it just became such a touchstone or touch point, I don't know, uh, for us as you know, young adults going from childhood. You're really on the brink, right, from mm-hmm. childhood to adulthood Absolutely. when you're that age. And to have the story of these losers. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I really always felt like a loser, but I really identified with the characters in that book. And I just, you know, people dismiss it for a lot of reasons. And I think it's just an incredible story about friendship and the bonds that we make as children. And, you know, I'm someone who's my two best friends I've had since I was two and four years old. So that kind of enduring 
relationship that you can have with someone else is really important to me. So, yeah, it's scary. Hmm. Um, don't ever watch the Tim Curry miniseries. I hate that with all of my soul. <laughs> oh. But I really enjoyed the the movie that came out last year, and I'm looking forward to the sequel to yeah, that. Me too. Um, so, but, you know, you just finished reading I it did. for the first time. You know, and I'm about 15 years too late, I feel like, uh, on that. Or not too late, but I'm behind, I feel. Um, but I really enjoyed it too, and... Uh, I'm looking forward to part two of of the film adaptation and seeing how they how they handle the adulthood aspect of the book. But yeah. uh, I, I'd like to share my uh, my Goodreads review of of the novel. So uh, I would love to hear that. All right, cool. Well, let's let's go on. Okay. So I'm the last person in the universe to read It by Stephen King, uh, and I know I'm really late on this, but I just have so many feelings about this book having having read it. So anyway. Um, it's not perfect, but it is so good. So much better than my expectation, given my awareness of it in pop culture. This isn't really a horror novel. It's a novel about the tension between childhood and adulthood and the mysteries and secrets they keep. It's about the power of nostalgia and the even greater power we have to let it go eventually. It's about seven losers, and I put that in scare quotes, who collectively deal with just about everything that any kid who has ever felt different has had to deal with. And that means every kid. Let's make that eight losers if you count Henry Bowers, which I'm inclined to do. A loser who stutters, a loser who's fat, a loser who's black, a loser who's a Jew, a loser who's just a little bit much, a loser who's a girl, a loser who's poor, a loser with uninvolved parents, a loser with overinvolved parents, losers with abusive parents, losers with dead or absent parents, a loser with a dead sibling, a loser who's afraid, a loser who's in love, a loser who can't shut up. And every one of them finds out that he or she is worthwhile, that he or she can be strong and brave and beautiful. Except Henry. Poor Henry. Cutting Henry back out of the picture again, sorry Henry, the loser's friendship is so, so beautiful. Look, I didn't grow up in the 50s, and my childhood was not nearly as adventurous as even the mundane things these kids get up to, cutting it out of the picture for a sec. Sorry, it. Even so, Stephen King has so wonderfully captured those things that are almost universal about childhood friendships. Easy camaraderie, boundless enthusiasm, in-jokes, and a bottomless capacity for discovery. This definitely had me smiling at memories of my best friends from middle school through college. Let's talk about memory. Ouch. Because this book is telling us that experience is essential, but so is forgetting. So is moving on. We can't hold everything close to our heart for our entire lives or we'll stop living. That definitely hits close to home for me, an unapologetic nostalgia junkie. I fear forgetting, but King spent 1,100 pages trying to convince me that it's okay. I might believe him. I might be willing to believe him because he also posits that, when it's really necessary, those old connections prove capable of coming back to life. That seems like a decent trade-off. So, this is also a monster story, a scary story. It certainly succeeds on that level, and there is a sizable body count in both strands of the braided narrative. There are real stakes here, and while our heroes have pretty durable plot armor, it's not impregnable. I had to chuckle that one of its victims was Eddie Corcoran. I had no idea my uncle lived such a harrowing early life. It is pretty terrifying, the titular creature, I mean, and works well as a scary monster that fell from the stars to spread its evil influence and hunt living flesh every so often. Uh, the monster who can take the shape of your greatest fear is a pretty tired trope at this point, but I imagine it was fresher in the mid-80s, and King plays well with it, coming up with some evocative horrors from the minds of his child protagonists, and gives a hint towards the end of what their updated adult fears might be. 
King is definitely playing in Lovecraft sandbox here with an unknowable horror from realms beyond confronting mere mortals and instilling madness in them. But he makes the trope more personal, allowing it to chit-chat with his victims, to banter and joust in a very human way. But lest you forget we're in Lovecraft territory, King works in some well-placed cyclopean adjectives here and there. But forgive me if I'm stating the obvious here, but it is ultimately really just growing up, isn't it? Something we sense and feel coming but can't really know. Something that hurts us all and kills some of us as it comes. Bev even thinks explicitly that it is what young people call sex, one of the greatest rites of passages in growing up. Something that comes to each individual in a different way and in a different time, often, unfortunately, in some imperfect or even damaging manner. But perhaps it is just one way of growing up, one way of developing, one way of experiencing sex, one way of living and dying. The town of Derry, Maine has had an outsized proportion of its residents over the years experiencing it, but people all over the world and throughout time have dealt with it. Henry Bowers was completely consumed by it, became a tool of destruction and hate that it embodies. But our seven heroes prove that, even at the heart of its dwelling place, there are other ways, other models— growing up with the wisdom and strength and tenacity and probably the sheer luck of the turtle rather than the horror of it, experiencing sex not as something violent, destructive, or coerced, but as something beautiful, powerful, and generative, using growth as a kind of transcendence rather than a settling into preordained ruts. Most of us probably experience a combination of it and the turtle's gentler, lovelier process. We don't all live in dairy, where the difference exists as something extreme, a blanketing thug of it with narrow slats of the turtle's warming light punching through into the hearts of Big Bill and Bevy and Haystack Ben Hanscom and the rest. It's helpful to know that it's not one or the other, all or nothing, unrelieved horror or idyllic flourishing. In this world we're all born into, we can strive to make the shares of each at least come equal. King's thesis is that imagination, hope, belief, and above all, friendship can help make those odds come out right. Wow, Alex, that was great. I really feel like you totally captured how I feel about this book and what it meant to me. So I don't think you're 15 years too late at oh, all. Well, that's good to know. I'm glad. I guess I guess it's a universal kind of book. I think it way. is, for great. sure. Well, we are almost out of time for this podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone. I did want to say that if you're interested in what we were talking about with uh – Cuca writes um, our haunted inkwell experience. Some of those stories that uh, us and our friends uh, wrote that day are up on Cuca writes website, which is cucarights.org. So if you all want to go check out some of the spooky stories we came up with, that would be where you would go to do it. Yeah, and I'll just make a plug too for um, our Facebook page, which is just Cuca writes, and we have a couple new events coming up in November, and you can check those out either on our Facebook page or on our website. There's a calendar of, of events that you can see, and can we plug Bluff and Vine? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So great. Our literary magazine, which we're super proud of, mm-hmm. um, our second issue is mere days away yes, from launching. It's coming. Yeah. So I think we, you know, we'll probably do a little podcast about that yeah. and um, about what's included this time and how we chose what we chose and that whole experience. Great. And uh, yeah, our, our Halloween season is coming to a close. But as you can tell, we have a lot of fun with it between our Franken-Reads uh, event last week and then everything we've talked about today. But I'm sure we will think of things to talk about even outside of the Halloween season. We have so many nerdy loves. We will mm-hmm. definitely find something to talk about. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot for being here, Bethany, and talking with us. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, bye, everybody.